uh, Isaiah 53, and you can find that in the Church Bibles on page 741. Who has believed our message, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a tender shoot, and like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain. Like one from whom people hide their faces, he was despised, and we held him in low esteem. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering, yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. Yet who of his generation protested? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgression of my people he was punished. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death. Though he had done no violence, nor was there any deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life an offering for sin, he will see his offspring and prolong his days, and the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. After he suffered, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many and will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will give him a portion among the great, and he will divide the spoils with the strong, because he poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressors. For he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. Thank you so much, Miriam. Um, Can I add my welcome? I think that'll be the third one. Um, My name's Naomi, and I'm a member of the church here. Let's pray before we start, shall we? Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for that beautiful, painful awesome description of our saviour. Lord, as we turn our minds to an aspect of our culture this evening and look at it in the light of that description, we pray, Lord, that you will speak to us. We pray you will speak through me and help us to hear you and serve you. Amen. So I have the great privilege this evening of bringing together my two great passions. One of them, I sincerely hope, is obviously Jesus um, and his word, and the other is works of fiction that teenagers enjoy. <laughs> so this evening is part of our August series called Culture Watch, where each speaker is invited to take an aspect of the culture around us, perhaps a book, a film, a song, a painting, and discuss it in light of our faith, in light of what the Bible says to us, in light of what it can tell us about the culture around us. So, so far, and I commend both to you, we've had Ken speaking to us about this year's best picture at the Oscars, Green Book, 
and about a painting um, by Lowry. This evening, you've got me, and we're going to talk about superheroes. <laughs> so I'm bringing it down a little bit, but I hope by the end of, of our time together, you'll see why it's important, even if you're never going to watch these films and you have absolutely no interest in them at all, and what insight into our culture these films can give us. So we're going to take a look at Avengers. Just out of interest, I'm particularly looking at Endgame, but I will be referring not in great detail, you'll be relieved to know, to all 23 films in the franchise. Um, <laughs> any other Marvel geeks? Anyone else seen lots of them? Not lots of you. Anyone, seen any of, anyone else even seen one? A smattering. Okay, that gives me a sense of, of where we're going this evening, so that's, that's really, really helpful. So I want us to start just thinking about why on earth would I stand up here and think it's important to talk to you about what's effectively a version of a comic strip cartoon that's made an awful lot of money. And hope, hopefully you'll see that we're not spending the evening worshipping at the altar of Hollywood, um, but just spending a moment thinking about why that's important. So I'm going to start by taking the example of the Apostle Paul. When he um, needed to understand the culture of the people he was speaking to, when he was speaking to people for whom the Old Testament wasn't their culture, he went and had a look at what was going on in their culture. He tells them, I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship. We're less likely to find an Acropolis that's going to give us a nice description of the objects of worship of the culture and the people around us. And I don't have the most recent statistic, and I suspect it's now more, but I wonder if we can take something from the statistic up on the screen here that tells us that the average 35-year-old in 2013, so probably quite out of date now, had seen over 35,000 hours of film or TV narrative. I did get a calculator out. That's over a year and a half, without toilet breaks or sleeping, <laughs> of watching film. So I wonder if that might give us a clue as to what it is the culture around us worships, where they're thinking, where they're looking. So I think one of the places we can go to look at what our culture worships is the screen. The small screen, the screen in your hand, the screen at the cinema, Netflix, however it comes, people are watching what's on the screen. And the cinema, or the screen itself, is where people now go to make sense of the world. They are more likely to go into a cinema, quite significantly more likely to go into a cinema, than they are to come into a church building. And I... I draw a lot in what I'm going to say on this really helpful book. Um, if you're interested in popular culture, films, that sort of thing, I thoroughly recommend Steve Turner to you. His book, Pop Cultured, entitled Thinking Christianly About Style, Media and Entertainment, I've found really helpful. He's, in fact, involved in the entertainment world in Hollywood and writes from a Christian perspective about that involvement. And he suggests that what cinema does, or where films work is where our society airs its hopes and uncertainties and how collective social understandings are created. And that resonated with me. In my front line, I teach English, preferably literature if I get the chance, to teenagers. And so I'm a big believer in the power of fiction. And it's where people switch off. It's where lots of people tell you, I'm going to watch this film. It's not 
particularly intellectual. It's not necessarily going to win any awards, although Black Panther should have done. Um, but, I, <laughs> um, but I'm going to do it to switch off. I'm going to do it to relax. And when we switch off our brains, which I suggest as Christians is a little bit dangerous, that's where we take on board these social understandings, these collective norms, this idea of what is appropriate, what is going on in society. When we're swept up in a good story and we're completely on board with the characters, we don't stop to think necessarily. And sometimes, no more should we, a great story is a great story. But we should have this idea of what are we taking on board when we're watching these things? But moreover, what is it that the people around us are taking on board? What is society reflecting and having put back into it that is the norm? Now, I teach um, mostly Year 10 and Year 11 students. So that's 14, 15, and 16-year-olds. Every single one of them had seen Avengers Endgame within two days of it coming out. It came out on a Thursday, because that's when films often do, but because it was such a massive release, actually the first showings were at one minute past midnight on the Thursday morning. I then taught on that Thursday. I didn't go to a midnight showing. Tempting, it was tempting. I had tickets for six o'clock in the evening. I was going straight after work. I knew I had students who were going to try and tell me what, what, was, what was happening. I had half a class of very dozy year 11s. I don't think it was appropriate. I'm going to judge the parenting of, of taking a, a child who's about to take their GCSEs to a midnight showing of anything. However, this is how enthusiastic they were. They're taking on board these norms. So we need to think, and this is why I'm talking about it this evening, it's the biggest grossing film of all time now, Avengers Endgame. If you're a, a film fan like me, you'll have know there's a debate about whether it's Avatar or Endgame and who cheated and all those kind of things. But the point is, lots and lots of people have seen it. It may not be your cup of tea, and I'm not going to stand here this evening and suggest it should be. But I'm going to suggest to you there's a significant proportion of people on your front line, be they your grandchildren, your children, the teenagers in our youth group, it's not all teenagers, though, by the way. I don't feel out of place at 38 in a showing, and I know that some of you don't either. I'm looking at the people I've seen at the cinema <laughs> seeing the films with me. So I'm not going to suggest that we should all suddenly start watching this particular genre of film, this particular group of films, but I am going to look at what it is that our society is taking on board as their collective norms just by choosing two of them this evening to have a little look at. I think they're brilliant, but that's not what I'm here to tell you about this evening. I'm here to tell you what's been taken on board and why we, what we need to know about it. Let me give you a flavour, however, by just showing the trailer for Endgame before we look back at the passage and think how it compares to our saviour. Stirring stuff. <laughs> or it's designed to be... I may have watched that trailer quite a number of times before the actual film. It's the combination of, of 22 previous films to try and desperately work out which characters were going to survive, what on earth was going to happen. And I'm not going to give any spoilers this evening um, as we go through, because that's not the point of what we're saying. So just a few essentials for those of you who have absolutely no intention of seeing these and um, really 
just need a little bit of, an, of a clue what on earth I'm going to be relating to the scripture passage in just a moment. So in each of these 23 films, the entire universe is under threat. Everybody's going to die. There's going to be some sort of really hideous disaster. And our superhero, one of the 22, um, or a motley band of superheroes, needs to save said universe. Sometimes the universe is encapsulated just in the city of New York, but that's a debate about American-centric films for another time. In this film, we've met these superheroes in the preceding 22. These are characters we're familiar with. It's a big narrative. It's an epic. They work together to, despite their differences, and they do all this, as exemplified by that clip at the very end of the trailer, by making quip after quip after quip after quip. The script is clever, it's quick, and it's funny. Or it's meant to be. I'm going to be referring particularly to Endgame, but mostly to the, the whole thing, and thinking about what makes it so popular. I am going to use one abbreviation, one thing I'm going to let you in on this evening, and I'm going to refer to the MCU. So the Marvel Cinematic Universe. The world which all of these films have created. So it's hugely popular, massively so. It's making billions. What makes it so popular? The heroes are flawed, and they're overcoming them is one argument. The relationships we develop with the characters is another. The humor, another. The soundtracks are fantastic, and they're full of brilliant actors. So we can hopefully see in this introductory bit of what I'm saying, that these are films which are watched by thousands and millions of people worldwide, and people that we know, and people that we care about, and in fact ourselves. And I just want to, I want to move back now to thinking about that idea of collective social understanding, and what it is that we can draw as the social understanding that's being imbibed by those of us who will sit in these films and switch off by the 15-year-olds that I teach that will sit in these films and switch off, by friends, by colleagues, by neighbours who will sit in these films and switch off. There are several films, as I've said, so I could draw lots of examples. I could do what Ken did brilliantly with Green Book, and if you didn't, weren't here for that talk, I thoroughly recommend it, and take some illustrations that reflect what's good in our culture what we should be aspiring to. I could talk about sacrifice. I could talk about the way marriage is honoured in these films. I could talk about good triumphing over evil. I could talk about valuing diversity, equality, and bravery. Or I could take another tack and say, what are the concerning social understandings that are going on here? I could talk about violence. I could talk about not great language. I could talk about materialism and unhealthy America-centred nationalism. There are 23 films, but I want to talk about two this evening and use this passage from Isaiah 53 to do so and think about a different tack. The third thing that Ken said we could do with these films when he was talking about Green Book is think about a yardstick for our culture. What is going on? So we're going to just look at two this evening. What is a hero? And how do we achieve redemption? And that's where we come back to our passage again and see it as the model of a hero, but a very different hero 
to the one that these films portray, the one that we would imbibe as an idea of a hero. And I suspect is not just the Marvel films. I suspect anything that we watch, anything that we see, anything in our culture. As a literature teacher, I'd probably take you right from Achilles through Shakespeare's heroes up to Captain Marvel and talk about what culture tells us is heroic. So let's have a little look at what you can see on the screen for the benefit of anybody listening on the a podcast are 21 of the heroes of the Marvel films so far. So what does our culture say is a hero? So we're looking at 21 different ones, eight of whom have saved the world at least once in their own film. A group of six of them have saved the universe twice as a team. Six are women. Captain Marvel's not in this picture. It's from Infinity War if you want to be picky about it. Um, seven of them don't have white skin. Again, if just for the geeks out there, I'm counting Drax as grey, Gamora as green, but the Hulk as white because as Banner, he has white skin. Eight of them aren't originally American. What do they have in common? A superhuman quality. Not all of them are human. They look good in tight-fitting lycra. They have perfectly balanced features and perfectly quaffled hair, no matter what they have just done. <laughs> and what is it that they share, then, with us and our idea of a hero. Each, of them will will each film will talk about the value of self-sacrifice, the value of team over individual. They will look to rescue and help the weak, and they will value life. They look great. They are good heroes. But that's where we need to stop and think, do, th do they reflect our saviour? Are they a hero? Are we taking on, and I think probably all of us in our culture too, taking on an idea of what the world thinks is heroic and what the world thinks is a hero, which is totally different to what we see in Isaiah 53 when the world's greatest hero is described to us there. So, in the MCU, a hero is muscular, a hero is attractive, a hero is incredibly aesthetically pleasing. We look on the outside. We always have. It's a perennial problem in scripture. It starts, we notice, with David being chosen as the king. We look on the outside. As human beings, God looks on the inside. Our saviour, according to this passage, had nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. Our hero, our saviour, doesn't fit that bill. I wonder how many of us, though, will take on board, and I include myself, that idea that heroes look good, that we need to be attractive ourselves, that that matters. How many of our teenagers are taking that on board? It's a perennial problem. I'm not saying this is a new thing about our culture. I'm saying we need to remind ourselves that it doesn't matter. Society will keep chipping away at this collective norm that beauty is important. It's the same for our teenagers, it's the same for us, and we need to remember that it's not true, that it isn't what the Bible says. Secondly, heroes in the MCU are physically and politically powerful. Many of the films involve high levels of government, 
access to high levels of government, the ability to change political systems. Several of our heroes are actually kings of countries. Our saviour was crushed and pierced and oppressed. The world is looking for a saviour to come in strength with either physical or political power. Most of the time now I'd suggest political. And I think sometimes I'm guilty of that too. I'm praying for the country to be rescued from what I see as a particularly difficult political situation that we're in right now. And I'm not saying it's wrong to pray for our politicians and to pray for our country. It's absolutely right. But what was our saviour interested in? He was interested in rescuing us from our sins and from our iniquities and from our broken world. He wasn't interested in rescuing at the political level. The disciples made that mistake too. They wanted rescue from the Romans. And that wasn't Jesus' agenda. And I'd like to suggest it isn't now either. But it is possibly what the world is looking for and what these films are feeding into. A desire for a politically powerful saviour. Do our lives reflect trust in a saviour who is not who is bigger than that? Who is more than that? I wish that mine did more. And finally, a hero in the MCU achieves fame and glory, is recognised, is seen by all people, is looked up to, has a brand, has a costume. But our saviour was despised and rejected by men. And he promises us the same thing. He says that we're blessed when men reject us, when people reject us because of him, because of his message. But our society says, as again I think it always has, that in order to be a hero, in order to be a good person, in order to be what, we, what, what we're designed to be, we should be up on a pedestal. People should be looking at us. We should achieve that fame and glory. And how many heroes do we watch, do we read about, do we see? If the MCU isn't your thing, think about perhaps what you do watch, what you do listen to, who you do consider to be a hero. And do we look for, I think there's a challenge to me here, to make sure that I'm spending my t- some of my time, enough of my time, thinking about the heroes of my faith, the people who didn't care about being despised and rejected, the people who didn't look for fame and glory, I think, personally, of Mother Teresa, of Jackie Pullinger, of people like Brother Lawrence, the heroes of the faith. How much time do we spend researching reading, hearing about the heroes of our faith rather than the heroes of our culture. And you'll know, if you know me at all, that I'm not saying it's wrong to go and watch a Marvel film. But let's reflect what's actually heroic and think about the heroes of our faith. And the second cultural norm, if we're thinking that the idea of a hero has been distorted here, that what we've got in the Bible, what we've got in Isaiah 53, points to a very different countercultural hero. I'd suggest that these films also have a lot to do with redemption, the idea of how we are redeemed. I came across an open letter from Pope John Paul II to artists everywhere, by which he included screenwriters, actors, anybody involved in what we would widely call the arts. 
And he said this, he said, even when they explore the darkest depths of the soul or the most unsettling aspects of evil, artists give voice in a way to the universal desire for redemption. This idea that we're all seeking somehow, whether consciously or unconsciously, to be taken out, to be redeemed, to be forgiven, to be accepted, to be loved. And we're seeking that globally as well. And I want to just look briefly to close at two ways these films reflect that idea of redemption and how, they, how we can think about them more biblically. If it's, again, our society here, I think, is airing what Steve Turner referred to as a collective uncertainty. The first is an individual redemption and how we achieve redemption as individuals. And I have a second clip to show you here. It's not very long. Don't worry, you're not going to have to watch too many superheroes dressed in too much lycra, I hope. Um, but let me just give you a little context. Um, you're watching a villain with the English accent talking to um, one of the superheroes, Agent Romanoff, about redemption, about what she's done and whether she can ever blot it out. Can I have the second clip, please? So in the MCU, if you've got red in your ledger and you'd like to wipe it out, the question comes back, can you? Can you wipe out that much red? There's a balance here. There's an idea that if you're taking this on board without stopping to think about it, if you do enough good, you can wipe out the bad. If you've done too much bad, you'll never be able to wipe it out with the good, the cosmic balancing scales. They're not new in culture either, but they're here. They're in what's being taken on board. You can either wipe out the red in your ledger or you can't. And I'd suggest, although, again, if you're going to come back at me and pick at this film, this is part of a trick, but what she's saying is true. She then spends the next... Ten films, working to try in her own way to wipe that out, to do enough good, and comes to a crisis point in Endgame where she believes she can and where she tries to without giving anything away. The actions of her character suggest she believes in this cosmic balance. She's one of our heroes. If we're taking on board the ideas of our heroes, we're taking on board the idea that we can wipe out the red in our ledger by doing enough good or that we need to. But turning back to Isaiah 53 again, the punishment that brought us peace was upon him. Two things for us here. There is only one way to deal with those things that we have done. Probably not a list of deaths like Agent Romanov's. Probably. But those things are only solved by Jesus. How many of our friends and colleagues and neighbours are carrying burdens like that, where they feel that there is nothing that they can do to wipe out things that have happened in the past? But I issue a challenge for us as well. As I was putting this together, the line um, from what a friend we have in Jesus kept re reoccurring to me, oh, what peace we often forfeit, oh, what needless pain we bear. Do we remember that the punishment of Jesus was meant to bring us peace? We weren't meant to be striving in this crazy, chaotic world to try and get that peace for ourselves. It comes from him. 
And I think the MCU, if you're a fan of it, gives us an example of characters who don't have that piece, who are desperately striving for something else. But I come back to that cultural yardstick. This is pointing to a culture of people who think that there's a balance. And can we address that? Finally, the last yardstick I want to have a look at is the idea of a wider redemption. And we've talked about an individual one. I'm now thinking of the redemption of creation, that point where things are brought back to where they should be. And I turn um, to a screenwriter here. The story arts, he says, have become humanity's prime source and inspiration as it seeks to order chaos and gain insight into life. When people feel that the world is collapsing around them, when politics is unstable, when people are concerned about the world, Hollywood makes money out of superhero movies. Why is that? Because what people want to see are these things. They want to see evil defeated, which is what happens at the end of every single film. We know it's going to. It's why we go to the cinema for it. We see relationships restored. We see truth told. We see harmony. We see unity. It sounds familiar to me, that I, those ideas. And our saviour is the one who can bring those about. But the reason people enjoy films like that is we are built for that closure. We are built for not the chaos around us. We are not built for a broken world. We are not built for broken relationships. We are not built for the triumph of evil. We're part of a creation subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, we read in Romans 8, in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the glorious freedom of the children of God. The reason superhero films are so satisfying to people is that they are looking for the glorious freedom of the children of God, the redemption of everything, everything sorted out again, everything coming back together. We're not meant to be satisfied with anything else. And so again, the rise of the superhero movie points for me to a culture where subconsciously, because they wouldn't put it in these words, People are seeking that. People are seeing the world around them as not satisfying, broken, not what they want, and are looking for something else. How do we point them to the answer? How do we point them to our saviour? How do we point them to the peace that they're seeking that you feel, if you're enjoying that kind of film, at the end of a superhero film? Do we live like we have the glorious freedom of the children of God? In our front lines, do we demonstrate that? How can we demonstrate that? It's probably another sermon. But I refer you to Ken's Green Book and to the front line list. Our gentleness, our faith, our good works. We point them to a world that is restored, that can be restored and will be restored in the end. So as we come towards communion to thinking about the sacrifice that Jesus made, our perfect saviour, who looks so different to the heroes that the world, in whatever culture, would like us to believe are heroes, just some ideas for us to think about. I wonder whether your takeaway this evening might be a way, as I've tried to imperfectly demonstrate this evening, 
to put what we're watching through a biblical lens, to think about it with God's worldview in mind. How do we talk to people around us about the bits of our faith that run so counter to our culture? Our different ideas of what a hero is. Do we as individuals spend as much time, and it's a challenge for me, seeking out and finding out about the heroes of my faith who aren't blazoned on billboards and trying to emulate them? And do we as ourselves accept that peace, the punishment that brought us peace that we're going to celebrate in communion in just a moment? Do we allow the chaos of the world around us to take it away? Do we remember that we are redeemed, that we are the children of God? I'm going to close um, just by praying for us before the band comes back and we move towards communion. So, Father, help us to remember your son, our saviour, as our hero, and to celebrate our redemption, that the chaos of the world will be brought back into order by you and to live as people who know that that's coming and have that peace and to point others to you. Amen.